This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. This is Dave Iverson. Living well with Parkinson's can be enhanced by any number of activities, from exercise to social engagement. But what about the role of the arts in contributing to that equation? That was one of the questions explored at a recent day-long symposium at New York City's Lincoln Center that focused on how the arts impact society. One panel presentation focused specifically on the role of the performing arts in those living with Parkinson's disease. The presenters included actor Michael J. Fox, David Leventhal, who directs the Dance for PD program based in New York, and neurologist Claire Hinchcliffe. After the discussion, the local Dance for PD performers staged a short performance. Recently, I talked with both David and Claire Hinchcliffe about what dance in particular offers people living with Parkinson's. And I began by asking David Leventhal, who danced principal roles for the Mark Morris Dance Group for 14 years, how he happened to get involved with teaching dance to people living with Parkinson's. I first got involved with the Dance for PD program when I was still dancing professionally with the Mark Morris Dance Group. And we were approached by a woman named Oli Westheimer, who had an idea for a class. Oli had a hunch that a dance class for people with Parkinson's would work well on many levels, partly on the social level, a way for people to connect and interact and be together and create a community, but also with the idea that dancers had a lot of information about movement strategies that would be particularly useful for folks with Parkinson's who were dealing with many of the same uh, challenges that professional dancers have, which is balance, coordination, musicality, uh, awareness of space, sequencing. And I got involved really because I was interested in different kinds of teaching and teaching different kinds of people. So I had an interest in that. And and when this idea was presented, I was lucky enough to be asked to teach the first class. And it was the best teaching experience I'd had to date when I started the very first class. And I lobbied to continue and to be involved with the program. And David, say something more about your interest in, in teaching different groups of people. I remember once you talking about that with me, and you said something about your view about sort of who dance is for and how we tend to look at dance and who we think dance is for and who we think it isn't for. Could you comment a little bit further on that? One of the things I enjoyed about teaching on the road is that it helped me get out of the cloistered elitist idea that dance education is for those who want to pursue a professional career. Because I would encounter people in the community who came to just learn about what, you know, what I was teaching and learn about Mark Morris' repertory, not because they were going to become professional dancers, but because they had a curiosity and an interest. And people of all different backgrounds and shapes and sizes would come to the class. And I thought, this is a a beautiful model for how the arts can engage all different people across all different boundaries and really bring people together. And so in addition to teaching professional level classes here at the Dance Center, I had a, a great interest in pursuing other teaching opportunities that brought dance to a much wider population. I really believe that dance is for anybody who wants to do it and that our challenge and our opportunity as teachers is to create movement that is both 
sophisticated and stimulating artistically, but also accessible to people without a lot of dance training. And that there is so much embedded in the dance form, whether you're teaching ballet or hula or tap, that gets at the root of who we are to be human. And that we have this incredible tool, uh, the body and the mind, and we often don't really think much about what we carry around with us. You know, we use our body to walk and we get around, but we're not really engaged with it. We're not really um, making a connection between the imagination and the body. And that's what dance does. And it's a very magical and life-affirming experience, especially for those who really haven't been given an opportunity to do it before. And can you now then say something, David, about how this idea that dance allows us to express something fundamental about who we are applies to people with Parkinson's because it still seems like such a, an anomalous pairing. Um, the idea of moving with beauty and grace for people who sometimes struggle to move at all. So how is it that dance makes sense for someone with Parkinson's as a way of expression and perhaps even more fundamentally, to express who they still are. One of the things we experienced early on in teaching this class was that there was a certain element of transformation that happened over the course of that hour we were together. And the transformation had as much to do with a mindset and an identity as it did with the actual steps and skills that were being learned. The community that we were working with here in Brooklyn I think, uh, as many Parkinson's communities do, thought a lot about Parkinson's and, and lived within the world of Parkinson's and in, in some ways lived a, a medicalized existence. Their lives were very much concerned with medication schedules and doctor's visits and therapy. And this class provided a way to change that narrative, a way for them to engage with a different story. And that story was really about a creative path. How could they think of themselves differently by being creative about movement and by learning a whole wide range of different kinds of movement and different movement qualities and to be given an opportunity to improvise and to create their own movements at once was completely contradictory to what Parkinson's should have enabled them to do or not enable them to do. But in fact, when given the right environment and the right structure, we found that people were able to make up their own movement and their own dances. And in that way, really take on an ownership over their bodies, but also their stories and their identities. So that was a huge change. And I think in many ways, because dance is such a, it's so much connected to the mind and the body working together, that it's the perfect foil for Parkinson's. It's the perfect way that people can access or perhaps detour some of the challenges that Parkinson's puts up and allows them to think completely differently about what they're able to do. So in the artistic space, in the creative space, they're, they're allowed to focus on possibility. And I think that's a huge shift from other areas where they are focused on a problem or a limitation. And I think for a condition where movement becomes more difficult, it becomes smaller, it becomes almost monochromatic, to be in a class environment where there are all of these colors and styles and qualities of movement 
It's a, um, a vindication, I think, of the creative power of dance and a, a trumping, if you will, of some of the elements of Parkinson's. And, and that, that's very attractive to people. Over time, people start to identify as dancers. People say, I'm, I'm a dancer, and that changes how I think about myself, and it changes how I take care of myself. That's, that's a huge transformation, I think, for, for people with Parkinson's, because it, it allows them to open doors for themselves. And if we've managed in some way in the dance for PD environment to enable that, then I think we've helped support a major transformation that starts to infiltrate other, other aspects of people's lives. And if you would say something more about the kind of mechanics of this, I mean, why it is that you were saying before that, that dance is sort of the perfect foil for Parkinson's. In kind of a step-by-step way, if, if you would, how does that work? Do you mean by that the, the sort of intentionality that you have to bring to dance, that dance isn't just doing whatever you want? And similarly with Parkinson's, you have to bring a new intentionality to movement because what was once automatic is is no longer as accessible. But if you can, give us a little bit of this kind of the nitty-gritty of, of how this actually can work. There seem to be a few aspects of dance that are particularly valuable for people with Parkinson's. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about what those are. I think the first one is this idea of intentionality, this idea that you have to think about each element of the choreography in order to manifest it in the body. These things don't just happen. And the class is not at all a free-for-all. I mean, there is, even when there's improvised movement, there is a structure, there's an idea, there's an aesthetic goal that the teacher set out or the participants set out. And so what we're really trying to do is take this idea, whatever it is, whether it's a story or an image or a painting or a poem, And we have to think about it. We have to think about the ways that we can move our bodies to create that aesthetic goal, whatever it is. And that takes a lot of thought. Uh, That process is not dissimilar from what people with Parkinson's have to go through for every kind of movement out in the real world. And so there's a very strong correspondence, I think, between the intentionality that happens in a, in a dancer's existence and in the dance class and what folks with PD need to work on. And so people learn how to control those qualities and to control them in the moment. And that's the second thing, I think, that goes hand-in-hand hand with intentionality, this sense of presence that you really have to be living and dancing in the moment. Dance doesn't happen in the past, and it doesn't happen in the future. It happens in this this moment. So you have to learn how to take that overarching theme or aesthetic ideal that we're trying to work on, or maybe it's a technical idea. How do we bend the knees? How do we shift weight? And you, you have to be aware of every part of yourself in the moment. You also have to draw on a number of different tools in that moment. Those tools include body awareness, awareness of balance, awareness of rhythm, listening to the music, looking at the people around you, making sure you don't bump into everybody. And that kind of constant presence where it's almost like your skin has eyes to it, that's something that would be familiar to any professional artist in any medium, as well as athletes at a certain level. And it's something that's very useful for folks with Parkinson's who have trouble with that kind of focus and with that kind of awareness. I think it's also helpful to think about some of the very specific aspects of dance technique. And regardless of whether we're working on ballet or modern 
flamenco, salsa, there are some essential elements to all of those forms that are shared. And those essential elements turn out to be really useful for folks with Parkinson's. Things like, how do we shift weight from one foot to the next? How do we soften the knees to help maintain our balance? How do we use our arms to provide a frame that helps us travel across the floor? Um, how do we use breath? Uh, how do we articulate through the feet so that we're not just vaguely stepping on the floor, but really getting our weight down into the floor? And speaking of weight, how do we think about connecting our own bodies to the floor so the floor is a source of support rather than fear? How do we use our focus to both initiate movement and let people know where they should look on our bodies? Where is the area of interest? So these are all things that dancers spend their careers, both in training and in performing, um, focusing on it. And they provide an incredibly useful toolkit for people with Parkinson's because those elements of focus and coordination, uh, weight shift, balance, those are the things that start to be much more challenging for people over time. That's David Leventhal, the director of the Dance for PD project, which now offers dance classes for people living with Parkinson's disease in over 100 cities and 13 different countries around the globe. We'll hear more from David at the end of this podcast, but next we're going to get a scientific perspective on how dance may be actually impacting the brain. And for that, we turn to Dr. Claire Henchcliffe, a movement disorder specialist and Parkinson's researcher at New York Presbyterian Cornell Weill Medical Center in New York. And Claire, I know you've observed the dance for PD performers many times and also conducted research into Parkinson's disease. And so I'm, I'm curious to get your perspective on what do you think is actually going on inside the brain when someone who might struggle to move can actually get up and dance. One of the things that we talk about a lot in Parkinson's and that we observe a lot is the sheer impact of the lack of dopamine on rather simple movements. For example, when we're evaluating the severity of signs of Parkinson's, we may ask people to perform simple repetitive tasks like tapping the fingers or tapping the toes. So that's very reflective of lack of dopamine. But actually in producing very complex coordinated movements, and especially when you start thinking about movements like dance, there's just so much more that comes into it. So we know, for example, that um, movements in initiated from the cortex and then many of these signals are, are modulated and are, and are controlled by the basal ganglia that of course are subject to control by dopamine but there are other networks that also come into play and these involve the cerebellum for example, involve the spinal cord and then really I talked about initiating movement in the cortex but there are so many areas of the cortex that are involved not in strictly speaking a simple signal to move but in planning the movement in sequencing movements and I think what happens as we see people with Parkinson's who might have difficulty with the rather more basic and very automatic movements that are subject to dopamine they're able to harness the the plasticity and the um, activity of various of those other networks um, many of them cortical that are able to almost bypass if you like some of the deficits uh, that we're seeing from the basal ganglia dysfunction. Does that mean, Claire, then, that in some ways it seems counterintuitive, but that complexity is a good thing, that, that the more that 
is involved, the more complicated a particular task happens to be, that in some ways that's, that's useful? It allows the brain to, to trick itself? I would say so, absolutely. And again, I think dance is a, a prime example because when people are dancing, it's not just that they're moving their muscles and, and it's not just that they're getting the benefits of staying limber, but they're using so much more. I mean, they have to learn a sequence of, of steps. They have to listen to the music. They have to process a rhythm. It all gets very complex. They have to um, know where they are in space. You can't dance with your partner if you're bumping into them all the time. They have to have good hand-eye coordination. They have to know where their limbs are. I think it's enormously complicated, and I think that because it really helps people in a very lovely and, and very enjoyable way to integrate all of these um, various ways of moving, various features needed for coordinated movement, I really think that that's something that dance has to offer over a more simple form of activity. One of the things I wanted to ask you about specifically, Claire, is the impact of rhythm and music. We see that obviously so centrally in, in dance in particular, but what is it, do you think, about rhythm, about music that seems to almost literally propel people that wouldn't be able to move in such a way otherwise? Um, it's a really, really interesting observation, and it's something that we see a lot in the uh, office and hear a lot about from our patients. So I think we, we all know from personal experience that when we hear a rhythm, really great musical rhythm, it's hard not to move. Your feet tap, your fingers drum, and it's, it's almost an automatic response. It's very interesting that there are multiple parts of the brain that will light up on a scan when we're uh, responding to rhythm and processing rhythm. But some of those areas are actually critically involved in Parkinson's disease, including the basal ganglia. And um, we do know that not only does rhythm kind of entrain movement in people without Parkinson's, but it also seems to entrain and um, even prod movement where it's not happening in Parkinson's disease. I think one example of that is if you give someone with Parkinson's who has a rather irregular uh, step pattern, music to listen to, and then look at them walking again, their step patterns can regularize. The um, gait becomes much more regular. The other thing that we hear a lot about from our patients and see sometimes if we test for it is when people get freezing of gait where they have a, a hesitation in starting and the feet seem to get frozen to one spot and they can't get out of it easily, then a rhythm either... Um, Something like a metronome can be that simple, or counting out, or music can actually help them to get out of that. It's almost like a, a stimulus that will help them to um, bypass the pathway that's not working. The second thing I should add about music is that I think there's an enormous um, emotional component to music. I think music can motivate us and um, music can calm us if we have anxiety and music can help to soothe a mood that might be depressed. So I, I think that we need more research into that. I, I think that there's a lot more complicated effects of music on movement going on right there. Let me ask you a little bit then about the research question, because on the one hand, it seems very important to have kind of definitive research evidence that these things can be helpful, perhaps not only in helping people with their symptoms, but 
also in other aspects of their lives, perhaps even also slow down the progression of the disease. But these are hard things to evaluate, as you know better than I. Hard to know, to isolate. What is it that's having an effect? Is it the dance class, or is it the fact that maybe you also walk every day? Um, it's, it's very hard to tease these things out. And yet, what I'd like to know, Claire, is A, why is that important to come up with definitive evidence? And in the meantime, though, is it also important not to be stopped from doing this because there may not yet be definitive evidence that the, the intuitive value that it has in people's lives is in and of itself, even if there isn't a scientific journal published about it, reason to go forward? I'm going to um, address the second question first, I think. So um, I would agree wholeheartedly that if an intervention, if an activity is perceived as having a benefit for the person who's doing it, then sure, why not go ahead? Why on earth would we stop people? It is difficult to evaluate the um, nature of the benefit that people report, that's for sure. But I think that there are several ways of addressing this. One is to take a very patient-centered approach and to use evaluations and rating scales that really rely on that, in which case we can uh, start to understand how helpful is it, is the effect sustained, all of these things that we'd want to know if we're going to recommend such an intervention like a dance class for Parkinson's uh, across the board and in the long term for people. So I think that those things are, are very important to stay patient-centered. Now, on the other hand, if I put my scientific hat on, I really want to know what's going on in the brain as well. So I, I think that when we're talking about um, drug development, for example, we like to know the effect on the patient, but we also like to know what it's doing. You really want to see that you have a scientific rationale to uh, hang your hat on. And I think that's where a lot of the basic science comes in. So there's been some great basic science research into effects of exercise on the brain. And then in terms of more complex and um, more translational and clinical research, I think there's been some great research that has tried to tease out which parts of the brain are involved, for example. What happens? Are parts of the brain activated? Are some networks depressed? So I think it is important for us to piece those together as well, but really as an underpinning for what the final effect is for the participants, for the dancers, for the students. You know, one of the things that we do know, of course, is that exercise helps in, as far as people's symptomatic improvement. It's always been much more difficult to assess whether or not it actually is impacting the, the underlying progression of the disease. But I heard someone make an interesting comment recently that I wanted to ask you about as well. This was a, a researcher, um, Lisa Schulman, who also, who you may know, who also studies Parkinson's and researches the impact of exercise. And her point was, you know, we may not know whether or not it's actually changing the, the biology, the underlying biology and the pathology of the disease. But if, in fact, it allows people to stay healthier longer, if, in fact, it keeps people from having to receive nursing home care, then, in effect, it is slowing the progression of the disease because people are staying healthy that much longer. I thought it was an interesting way of kind of turning around that question that's often so central to Parkinson's disease research. 
Yeah, I think that that's an absolutely great way of looking at it. And um, I'm very practical. We know that exercise itself and, and various forms of exercise have effects directly on the brain. I, I think that's incontrovertible uh, at this point. And we know from animal models that it improves brain plasticity, it changes uh, gene transcription, it improves neurogenesis, um, it improves long-term potentiation needed for learning. Um, so we know that there are all of these benefits. The question is, you could have these benefits, but if they don't help the people who they're meant to help, then really, why are we doing that activity? And so I, I think it's nice to go at these ent interventions from both sides. From the one side, a very scientific perspective, to say how can we dissect what is actually the effect on the brain and how is that translating through to improvements in lifestyle and improvements in health. But of course the other side which you just brought up and I agree absolutely with Dr. Shulman that there has to be some practical outcome and I think that one thing that we're going to see a lot more over the coming years are more efforts to actually figure out what those practical outcomes are are people living more healthily? Could they be going to their doctors less? Are they getting hospitalized less? Are they having fewer emergency room visits because they're not falling as much? All of these things are important for health. They're also important for health care and uh, the economy that we all have to deal with in uh, delivering best health care. So if we can keep people out of the hospitals, out of the emergency rooms, and out of the nursing homes by a beautiful intervention like dance, then that just seems like a no-brainer to me. That was Dr. Claire Henchcliffe, neurologist and movement disorder specialist at New York Presbyterian Cornell Weill Medical Center in New York. And now for the last part of our conversation, we return to David Leventhal, a longtime professional dancer with the Mark Morris Dance Group, who now directs the Dance for PD program. And David, I want to pursue one last topic with you, and that has to do with the element of performance itself. Everything that you and Claire have described so far applies to what takes place in the class. But I know you also think that something additional happens when you actually perform, when you step out onto the stage. Can you describe what it is you think that gets added additionally when that happens? One of the things I see in certain areas of living with Parkinson's is that a goal or a task, it often makes things easier. If you think about how people work their way or need assistance getting out of a freeze, often if you provide a task for them to do, like stepping over a line or stepping over someone's foot, it's easier than just simply having a, a verbal instruction. And in some way, I, I sort of think of the performance process as that big task or that big goal that motivates people forward. Uh, we obviously have a lot of micro goals in the actual weekly class where we're working on specific skills. But to have something that, that hangs over you and says, this is what we're working for, um, this is what we're working towards, I think provides that sort of constant throb of a, of a task, of an idea, of a, of a motivation that brings people together in ways that the, the weekly class doesn't. But I think that the second part of all of this is that the performance process creates an incredibly strong community. And yes, the weekly class does that too. People come together, we dance together, we have this experience 
being together and creating art together, but to be with the same group of people week after week and working on material that is sometimes challenging, sometimes is not always an easy process, um, creates these very strong, unbreakable bonds among individuals in the group. And just like any performance project, whether you're looking at community theater or making a film together or working in an art studio together, there's, there's something about working on a, being part of a bigger project and knowing you're a part in that project and knowing that there are people around you who are all struggling and enjoying and experiencing um, in different ways. It's a, a unique and special process. And so I think it's the, both the overarching element of that task that goal, um, as well as the affirming development of, of this strong community around the project that, at least in our experience, has made the performance project like nothing else that we do. And it's why we keep doing these projects, because I, I think the, the sense of community gets stronger and stronger with each project that we do. Not long ago, David, um, I know you had the experience, as did I, of, of seeing your dancers, the Dance for PD group. Uh, the Brooklyn Parkinson's group, perform at Lincoln Center. I wonder if you would say something about that, what that meant to you, and and perhaps what it also may suggest about the role the arts can play in in everyone's life. Witnessing our Dance for PD group performing at Lincoln Center was resonant on two levels for me. One was personal, and one is sort of more broad stroke. So the personal was that i performed at Lincoln Center many times, and I think I think I counted, I've done 47 performances at Lincoln Center over the years in different pieces and different different venues. And it's it's always a thrill because it represents, I think, to anyone in the performing arts the, the highest level of achievement. And it is in many ways a uh, a national, international platform for the highest level of performing arts achievement. And so to see our dancers there and to know that I had in many ways completed this cycle of dancing there myself and then being able to pass on the artistic uh, knowledge and, and some of the skill to our dancers with Parkinson's was a wonderful uh, kind of full circle, full loop um, process for me. And it, was, it felt in many ways sort of passing the torch and knowing that the idea of being at Lincoln Center is no longer about me being out there on stage, and it's not so much focused on the self, but focused on a community, focused on a group of people who have meant, come to mean so much to me and who represent the next stage of, of my career, which is to, to share what I know and to bring a sense of, of grace and beauty and power to a group of people who are so hungry and eager to have that sense in their own bodies and in their own lives. So that was one transformation that was really satisfying. But the other is that, you know, to see Lincoln Center open its doors to people of different abilities and for people living with a movement disorder and and, uh, challenging disorder like Parkinson's is, I hope, uh, a sign of what's to come in the future, that there aren't boundaries, there aren't walls around institutions like Lincoln Center, and there aren't labels of those who can dance and those who can't dance, but rather that Lincoln Center is a place where the performing arts are accessible to anyone who wants to see them and participate in them. I think for many years, those sorts of institutions have been very much about the 
the audience-performer relationship. What's starting to happen now is that institutions like Lincoln Center and, and Mark Morris Dance Group and others are seeing one of many responsibilities to be that of engagement, that we have a role and a responsibility to include and to provide you know, an active engagement opportunity for people of all stripes, for people with all kinds of challenges, and that there really aren't limits in what people can do. The only limits are those that we set up for ourselves, either as individuals going into that experience or as institutions thinking about who's included. So my hope is that people with Parkinson's and people living with other challenges and other chronic diseases have the opportunity to be part of the artistic community that is Lincoln Center, that is Mark Morris Dance Group, that is other major arts organizations, because it's such a powerful idea and formula for how the arts can engage folks who are so interested in staying creative and staying active and using their imaginations to live better with whatever challenges they're dealing with. And so for me, it's a window into how we as a society can provide creative, expressive, physical, and artistic opportunities for every member of our society, not just those who have decided to do it as a profession, but but really everybody. And so I'm hoping that others follow Lincoln Center's model, open their doors, provide that kind of engagement, not just to do lip service to the idea, but really to make a commitment to their communities to provide this level of, of opportunity. David Leventhal. And before that, Dr. Claire Hinchcliffe, both commenting on the role the performing arts and dance in particular can play in the lives of people living with Parkinson's. To learn more about the Dance for PD program, you can visit their website at danceforpd.org. And to find out more about all facets of Parkinson's research and how you can participate in that effort, visit michaeljfox.org. I'm Dave Iverson. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. 